Please take your Bibles again and turn to 1 John chapter 1. And this morning I'll read from the beginning of John's first epistles, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, And walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Well, let's once again look to God and ask for his help in prayer as we come to the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the word of God. He is the word of life, and he has become flesh. And as John said, they beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we believe that this Savior still lives and abides at your right hand, and that he ever lives to intercede for us. So look upon him and the perfection of his obedience in our place and answer us with all of the riches that he has purchased for us. Give us the Holy Spirit in this hour, both to preacher and to hearers alike, and bless us, as Scripture says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ And help us in this hour to feed upon him. For we ask this in his name. 
Amen. Amen. Well, one commentator has entitled this section that we're focusing on, both last week and now finishing up today, beginning with verse 5 of chapter 1 and going through verse 2 of chapter 2, walking in the light. So it's a, a section we could say that fits together. First John is notoriously difficult to outline, but this man says this is the part that he thinks fits together as a paragraph, and that's how it's marked out in the Bible I'm reading from. So that's how I'm looking at this. So let me review what we saw last week. And I uh, headed this section, the message, the first section, I should say, that was verse 5, the message, God is light. And I mentioned how uh, you have those well-known scripture passages in Leviticus repeated in 1 Peter about God being holy, and we should be holy, for the Lord our God is holy. And I said, after the apostle has declared that God is light, meaning he is completely without sin, there is no darkness in him at all, he goes on to make the point that therefore we should be holy. We should live in the light. And that's what we see then uh, in verse 6. So, when we come to verse 6 through 10, we see, first of all, three perversions of John's message by the false teachers that were troubling the church or churches to whom he was writing. The first perversion is not walking the talk or not walking the walk. As he says, there are some people who say they have fellowship with him, but they walk in darkness and do not practice the truth. They're lying, he says. They're not doing what's right. So not walking the walk or the talk is the first perversion of John's message. They say, well, we, we can have fellowship with God. We don't have to live holy lives. The second perversion is denying having sin, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, evidently some false teachers were saying that and they were troubling the churches. So John says you can't make that claim that you have no sin you have no guilt. You have no sin in you whatsoever. And another perversion of his message is, in verse 10, denying having sinned. Evidently, some people were denying that they ever had sinned. Not just they don't have sin now that they're Christians and washed from their sin, but they deny they ever had sin. And so John says these are three perversions of his message of the truth. And then he gave three corrections or solutions to these perversions. And the first one is in verse 7, and that is walk in the light. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The second correction is confess your sins. He says, we all have sin. Therefore, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then there's a third correction or solution to these perversions of these false teachers whose false teaching was making inroads evidently in the churches of Christ. And that we didn't get to last week, but that's in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And that's what we'll focus on today. Aim not to sin and remember your advocate. 
aim not to sin, and remember your advocate, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John is bringing this section, this paragraph here, to a head, we could say, and he's bringing it to a close, if you want to be strict and uh, end your sections where you end your outline. So here he comes to the head of his argument, and it's this, that in order to correct the perversions of John's message, you need to aim not to sin and remember your advocate. First of all, aim not to sin, the first part of verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. Some commentators uh, have said this, or one commentator, I should say, has said this, looking at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, where he says, don't say you have no sin. You need to be confessing your sins because we all still sin. He, he, he says that John told us here that our sins will be fully forgiven if we simply face them and confess them. But he says John doesn't want us to draw the conclusion that we may think lightly of sin. And you can see what he's saying here. He's saying, well, if, we're, if we, John is making the point, look, we all have sin. And that's how some people look at it, don't they? So why make such a big deal of sin? It's not that big a deal. And he's saying, no. And here's a quote. John's purpose is to prevent sin, not condone it. And so let's notice several things about this first part of verse 1. First of all, let's notice that in this first statement, I write these things to you that you may not sin. He's kind of summing up what he said in verses 5 and 6. There he says, God is light, and if we have fellowship him with him, then we need to walk in the light. He's holy, we need to live holy lives. He's kind of repeating that first part of verse 6 there. If we say we have fellowship with him, then we need to live a certain way. We need to walk not in darkness, but in light. We need to practice the truth. Here he states it this way, I'm writing these things. He probably means especially this section we could apply it to the whole epistle, but especially what he's written in this paragraph. I'm writing them to you with this aim that you not sin. He's summing up what he's said already, and he's stating it this way. Here's my aim that you aim not to sin. Second thing here to notice is this. We should not conclude from verse 8 and from verse 10 that we have sin, all of us have sin, and we do sin. We continue to sin. We have sinned. We should not conclude that, therefore, John just wants us to resign ourselves to the fact that we're going to commit sin. Now, now in a sense, we should, because we are. And if we think otherwise, then we're deceiving ourselves, John said. And we're making God a liar. And we're not practicing the truth. So we are going to sin. But it's, the point is, you don't just resign yourself to that and say, well, it's no big deal. It's okay. I don't have to worry about it. I'm good because I'm in Christ. And then just give in to temptation and to sin. 
Then another observation about this first point here, his first part of verse 2, is he uses the address, my little children, which is obviously a term of endearment. Jesus spoke that way, using this word to the apostles in the upper room in John chapter 13. And John uses it six times in 1 John. He addresses them as little children, and here, my little children. He obviously knew the churches or church to which he was writing. He's focusing here not so much on the false teachers and their false teaching, but on the people in the church that he knows and loves and that he wants to do right, and he wants to persevere and not fall in to this false teaching, fall prey to it. And I mention this, and I highlight it, that this is how he addresses them for this reason. Some people think that if we focus upon sin and our need to deal with sin in a righteous and biblical way, that we don't love people. Well, that's not loving John loves the people to whom he writes. He thinks of them as his dear children, my little children. They think of him, no doubt, if they're walking with the Lord, as a father in the faith to them. And then another thing to notice is this. When John says, I write these things to you so that you do not sin, he is not imagining that people are going to reach the point or have reached the point in their mortifying of their sins, they're putting them to death, that they have attained or will ever attain perfection in the Christian life. That's not what he means when he says, I write these things to you so that you do not sin. Furthermore, he is not imagining that anyone, any Christian, will ever simply be delivered from the fight against sin. If you just persevere in the faith long enough you'll reach a point, like I have, the 90-year-old apostle, that you won't sin anymore. John is not saying that. He already has said, if we say we have no sin, we deny ourselves. And he's including himself in that statement in verse 8. He's not saying, in effect, if you master these few simple directions I'm giving you, you'll never sin again. So don't look at this statement that way. And further... He is not simply saying, just don't sin as a pattern or as a practice. That's not what he means when he says don't sin. Some people say that that's how we have to understand these very seemingly absolute statements that John makes about sin in 1 John. That's not how we understand them. John is not using here a present tense. He's using a tense that would be well-suited to speak about any and every act of sin. Don't do it, he's saying. That's how I'm writing to you. I'm writing for that reason that you do not sin. So how should we understand it? We understand it this way. He's saying this. As a Christian, this is how you should live. You aim not to sin. That's how you live for the rest of your life. Every day, every hour. Well, but John, we know we're going to sin. Come on. Aim not to sin. Isn't that how a Christian should live? Doesn't that fit the message of the Bible? Isn't that the way Jesus taught us to pray every day? 
lead us not into temptation. Aim not to sin, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. So that's the first thing. The, the, the third correction, the first part of it, the solution to the perversions of John's message, aim not to sin. And now the second part of it then, remember your advocate. It's the last part of verse 1 and verse 2. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So remember your advocate. In other words, bear this in mind. Live in this light all the time that we have an advocate with the Father. Not just on the days that you're doing well as a Christian. Not just as on the days that you're able to not sin, at least to a degree. But every single day. Because you have sin every single day. You commit sin every single day. But every single day, you have an advocate with the Father. John Stott wrote about um, the first part of verse 2 and then the second part of verse 2. He says, It is possible to be too lenient towards sin or too severe. And his point is this. Because it's possible to be too lenient towards sin, well, we're going to sin, so why make such a big deal out of it? So John says, no, no, don't be so lenient toward yourselves and towards sin. Aim not to sin. But he says it's also possible to be too severe. So he writes this. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. So let's look at this fact that we have an advocate with the Father and consider several things about it. First of all, what is the definition of advocate? The only other place in the, in the New Testament where this word occurs is in John's Gospel, in John 14, 15, and 16, where it's talking about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, I will send the Comforter. It's the same word. So because it's the same word, some translations have put the word advocate in John 14, 15, and 16 to speak about the Spirit. Some say comforter because it's from the same Greek word that means comfort or encourage. Some just write paraclete from the Greek word and they just transliterate that Greek word because it's hard to figure out exactly what it means. I agree with that idea. And so I like the translation of the New King James Version in John 14, 15, and 16. He's going to send another helper. But I also like the translation advocate here because of the context. The word in Greek is like our English word. It can mean someone who pleads your cause or pleads your case. Like a lawyer is an advocate is a synonym for lawyer in our, in our society and in our English language. And so it's bringing before us Jesus' intercessory work, his mediatory work. He's a go-between between God and us. God has been offended by us. And Jesus is the mediator. Like we sing, my advocate appears for my defense on high. And we're told in Hebrews 7.25 that Jesus Christ always lives to intercede for us. 
He not only was a go-between for us and a mediator when he hung on the cross, but he still is. He's our advocate before the Father's throne in heaven. That's an advocate. That's the definition of advocate. Secondly, let's consider our need for an advocate. It says, and if anyone sins. Now, John does not mean here, in the extremely unlikely event that any one of you Christians ever sins, that's not what he's saying when he says if, as if, you know, maybe it won't happen. That's not what he's saying. He's saying effectively when you sin. Whenever anyone sins, and we use that language that way, use the word if. Let's say you set up for a meal outdoors on the patio. Your husband says, you know, there's a 100% chance of rain this afternoon. And you look at AccuWeather and you find out he's right. So you just say this. Well, if it rains, we'll come inside. Now, when AccuWeather says two hours before the event, it's going to rain I mean, it's not gospel truth, but it's going to rain. You know it's going to rain, but you're saying, I'm going to make the effort. You say, if it rains. And that's what John is saying. If anyone sin, You're going to sin. But what are you doing as a Christian? You're aiming not to sin. That's the idea. So let's consider our need for an advocate then. It's based on the truth of verse 5. God is light. He's holy. He dwells in absolute light. There is no stain upon his character, his being whatsoever. He is light, pure light. We are not. We are sinners. And God is not pleased with our sin. He dislikes it. He hates it. He is angered by our sin. We read it in Psalm 7, verse 11 this morning. God is angry with the wicked every day because he is a just judge. He doesn't look away from sin. He doesn't wink at sin and just give a nod and say, don't worry about it, I got it. Now, ultimately he does, but that's not the way he looks at sin. Sin alienates us from God. Christ comes as a mediator between us and God. And as it says in Colossians 1, verse 21, he reconciles his people to God through his death. So we have a need for an advocate. And it's also true based on the truth of verses 8 and 10. We still have sin. We still commit sin. We still, Christians, we still sin. And this is John's emphasis here. He's writing to Christians, and he's saying, today, still, you have an advocate with the Father. He still does mediatorial work. He only died once, and it was long ago, much longer for us than it was for him at that point. But we still have his advocacy going on in heaven. He's reconciled us to God, but he still acts as our intercessor and advocate in heaven. So there's our need for an advocate. We still need him in that capacity. Third thing to notice is this. It's the reality that we have an advocate. That's his statement here. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Remember how Job wished that he had an advocate with the Father. In Job 9, he said, God is not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. In other words, I can't be an advocate for myself. 
Then he says, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. And he said later in chapter 16, oh, that one might plead for a man with God. I wish there were somebody, Job said, who could be my advocate, a real advocate and an effective advocate. Well, in the gospel, we learn that there is one. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So here again, the emphasis is on his intercession with our Father, what he does now. And let's note two things about it. We saw back when we were studying the confession, back in the old days, in Sunday school classes, we saw that one of the blessings of adoption is that we, quoting from the confession, we receive the care of sons. That's the care that God gives us. And that includes both what we could call tender loving care, comfort, etc., and discipline. Hebrews chapter 12. He disciplines every son that he receives. But what we're being reminded here, brethren, is this. Though God is still not pleased with the sins of his own people, he treats them as sons. What he tells us is that once we are reconciled, we relate to God not as a judge primarily, but as a father. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, which is, means to impress upon us at least this, that God is favorably disposed to us because of the work of Christ. He has always been favorably, favorably disposed toward his people, we could say. He's angry with us, with our sins, and certainly when we were in our sins. But look over at chapter 4 and verse 10 for a moment. It says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why is there a, a, a mediator? Because of God, God the Father, God the Judge. In other words, Jesus didn't say, look, Father, I know you're angry with these sinners, but I'm going to do something so you won't be angry anymore, and then you'll love them. That's not the Bible's picture, is it? Why did God send his son? Because he loved his people. Out of love, he sent his son. That's the point. He is favorably disposed to us. He has always been favorably disposed to his people, though they didn't deserve it. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life we need to remember that when we sin we need an advocate we need forgiveness we have an advocate who loves us and we have a father who loves us we should always be thinking about that not that i can't go to him with such soiled rags you need to go to him if you have soiled rags. That's the point here. And you should think of it this way. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He will give you forgiveness when you sin. 
He will cleanse you, as it says in chapter 1, of all unrighteousness. In verse 2, we're going to see how he dealt with his Father's wrath against us on the cross. He's a propitiation. Here the focus is on how he helps us now as Christians. If we sin as Christians, we have an advocate with the Father. We have someone to help us. We continue to sin as Christians, however long you've been a Christian. However mature you've become in the faith, however much you've mortified certain sins in your life and have some sins where you can say maybe by God's grace, I hardly ever commit that sin anymore. I know the roots of it are in my heart, but God has really blessed me. I used to curse like a sailor when I did something that upset me or especially if someone else did something upset I cannot remember the last time I spoke like that. Well, thanks be to God. But we all still have sins, however much progress we've made as Christians or however much progress we've made in certain areas as Christians. Because we continue to sin, we need to remember we have an advocate with the Father. Do we always continue to sin? Yes. He continues to plead for us. We are accepted in the beloved. And then a fourth thing we need to look at is this, the identity of our advocate. And I think we'll have to stop here. I have six things, but I won't be able to get on to verse two. But let's at least conclude with verse one. The identity of our advocate, it is Jesus Christ, the righteous. The last part of verse one. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Who is that advocate? Well, it's the Word, the Word of life. It's Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What's the connection here of righteousness and intercession? Because he mentions Jesus Christ, the righteous. We might think he would say Jesus Christ, the merciful. But he says Jesus Christ, the righteous. But let's notice a passage that combines these two things, Christ's mediation and his righteousness, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. Hebrews 7, 25 and 26. Not removing my jacket because I have a long time to preach yet, like my nephew used to assert was the case but because I'm hot. Hebrews 7, beginning at verse 25. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us. Here's the emphasis on righteousness now. Jesus Christ's, we could say, practical godliness and righteousness who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. One of the things that qualified him to be our mediator and to lay down his life in our place on the cross 
and to be continually our intercessor in heaven and continually going to God and pleading, forgive him based on what I did on the cross, is that he was holy, harmless, and undefiled. And so John connects these two things, his mediation and his righteousness or godliness. This is our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. In other words, he's not like us. Chapter 1, verse 8, who always have sin. He has no sin, and he never had sin. He's not like us, verse 10, who continue to sin. He never sinned. He didn't sin once. He could say, I have not sinned. And that qualifies him to be our high priest, our intercessor, our advocate, our mediator. He is completely qualified for it. I think that's at least in part what John is emphasizing. And in his mediation, he will be completely effective. This process of Christ mediating for us will never break down at any point because he is perfectly righteous. Think of it in the current climate in which we live. The distrust of public officials, probably higher than at any time in the history of our nation, whether they are elected officials, appointed officials, or officials who work in law enforcement. Think of having a righteous advocate in contrast to a public defender that gets assigned to you because you can't afford the lawyer you would like to have, the advocate you wish you had, the advocates that some other people can have because they can afford it. Now, I'm not slamming public defenders. I've never had a public defender, but I've worked with some who have been working with people that I know, and some have been very excellent and have gone above and beyond the call, you'd think, especially since they were just assigned to somebody and they're only making a certain amount of money no matter what happens. But some act like they're only making a certain amount of money no matter what happens. And they're not the best of advocates. But Jesus Christ is not like that. He's righteous. Or think of a judge who's open to bribery. Jesus Christ is not like that. Neither is our Father in heaven. In fact, we're told in this passage that both, in this case, our case, if you're a Christian, both the aggrieved, the Father in heaven, who hates sin, and the advocate, our mediator, are both righteous. Verse 7 says that, I'm sorry, verse 9 says that God is faithful and just or righteous to forgive our sin. And now we're told our advocate is righteous, perfectly righteous. So he and the Father are both completely righteous and they are both completely united in this plan to save their people from their sins. And God has sent the Son to die, and He has died. He's done everything that needs to happen, and He continues to intercede for us at the Father's right hand, a completely righteous advocate pleading to a completely righteous Father. And the argument here is you should always go to that advocate. 
You should go to that Father, remember that, remembering that Jesus is there pleading for you, standing there representing to you His uh, sacrifice for you on your behalf in the presence of God. It's like we sing, My advocate appears for my defense on high. The Father bows his ears and lays his thunder by. Not all, no, I didn't finish. Not, not all that hell or sin can say shall turn his heart, his love away. When you come to a righteous Father and have a righteous advocate, if you are coming in faith, there is no way your sins are going to continue to adhere to you. Well, we'll look next time at the great achievement or accomplishment of our advocate in verse 2a, and then the worldwide scope of his achievement in verse 2b. But for now, let me just say a few things in conclusion. Let's remember, brethren, that this passage is a whole I don't think there should necessarily be a paragraph break or a cha- I should say a chapter break at verse 1 of chapter 2. I think it does go along with verses 5 to 10. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 do. It's a whole. It ends here. It's a passage and it's all of a piece as we say. One piece like Jesus tunic that was or his, his, his garment that was woven just in one piece. It was seamless. Think of it like this, what John is saying here in this passage. Think of it the way that um, John Owen wrote his treatise called The Mortification of Sin. How do you put sin to death? He wrote 80 pages on the subject. And he saved till the last chapter this point. In mortifying sin, look to Christ in faith. And he didn't save it to the last because it was the least, the, mo- the least important thing. He said, this is the only thing that's really effectual, looking to Christ in faith. If you don't do this, you'll do all the other things I wrote in vain. His point, though, is not that you should forget every other thing I wrote. That's not his point. And that's the same way it is with John here. He said in verses 5 through 10, we should face the fact that we're sinners and we should face our sin head on. And we should acknowledge our sinfulness. And we should confess our sins. And we should do everything we can with all the power that lies within us. And especially with the power that lies outside of us in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. To put our sins to death and to walk in the light. To obey God's commandments. And what John is saying here is, and then especially do this. Remember that you have an advocate in heaven. In verse 2, remember that you have a propitiation who's laid down his life for you. Sadly, too much of Christianity in our day wants to just skip to the end, doesn't it? Well, let's just focus on the fact that we have an advocate. Let's not talk about the sin stuff. And let's not worry about confessing our sins striving to walk in the light and turning away from sin and obeying God's commandments. Let's not worry about that. 
mean, let, let's just go to this advocate. I mean, it is the most important thing, right? It's the main thing. It's the one thing that's effectual. And to that I say, amen. But the problem is this. Just skipping to the end is not biblical Christianity. Not in John's book, we could say. And John's book is in God's book. So brethren, part of the message is, and we'll get the rest of it next Lord's Day, God willing, focus on the end, if you will. Make that your main thing, the fact that you have an advocate with the Father in heaven. Live at the end. Live at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's grace. There's power there to overcome sin. There's forgiveness there to wash away your sins. There's the only hope to ever overcome sin in your life. Live there at the cross. But don't neglect or ignore the things that precede that in verses 5 through 10. And don't ignore what follows in verses 3 and following of chapter 2. By this do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. It's all of a piece it's all part of the gospel message. Because if we say, well, I'm just taking what is more pleasant to me, what seems more positive to me, what I like. If you do that, if you try to live that way, remember this, in John's book, which is frankly part of the only book that matters, God's book, you can't be a Christian. Let's go to him as our advocate so that we might live and walk as God says we should walk. And brethren, let's aim not to sin. By God's help, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take your word and write it upon our hearts. Make our advocate more precious to us Help us to live at the foot of the cross, remembering every day and every hour that we need the cross. As we sing, every hour we need you, O Lord Jesus Christ. And help us then to live a life of confessing our sins fully and freely and walking in the light by your grace that we may enjoy our fellowship with you and with one another and that we might know the reality of being cleansed from all sin. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.